Hi. Today is an extra, extra special episode of Occupied. One, because it's my birthday. And because of that, I've decided to give you guys the present. So a little while ago, I had the absolute honour of talking with Professor Elizabeth Townsend, and it was just one of the most incredible conversations I've ever had the privilege of being a part of. We talked about everything from how to think big enough to be able to come up with these profession-defining concepts such as occupational justice, uh, the Canadian Occupational Performance Measure, and stuff like that. We talked about the place of arts and crafts within occupational therapy. We talked about her story and how she got into the profession. Uh, we talked about everything in between right up to where she would like and foresees the profession going in the future. Absolutely amazing conversation. I have it here for you guys to listen to as well. So strap in, sit down, get comfy, get some snacks, enjoy this one because I absolutely already know that you guys are going to get as much out of it as I did. So please enjoy the phenomenal Professor Liz Townsend. G'day, my name's Brock Cook and welcome to Occupied. In this podcast, we're aiming to put the occupation in occupational therapy. We explore the people, topics, theories, and underpinnings that make this profession so incredible. If you're new here, you can find all of our previous episodes and resources at OccupiedPodcast.com. But for now, let's roll the episode. That's a good question. I started to become a physiotherapist and uh, in Canada at the time, physiotherapy and occupational therapy were taught in the same program. So I started my journey with a diploma in physical and occupational therapy. So occupational therapy found me through physiotherapy and then I began to see that occupational therapy had a much broader scope and I found it interesting. So was it, was it the, the way that degree was set up, did you kind of like choose a, a direction sort of once you'd started it? Uh, early on, you could get a job in either field okay. once you graduated. And I had some physio jobs, um, but I had occupational therapy jobs that I liked more. And, and to some extent, um, circumstances found me because um, in two different situations, the best job around was in occupational therapy. So I took that uh, rather than physiotherapy. And uh, after a while, um, occupational therapy became the main theme. And, and, and uh, you know, you had to then be licensed in one or the other. So to some extent, occupational therapy found me by regulations that required licensing. <laughs> and once you're locked in by licensing, you keep going. Trapped you. <laughs> yeah, that could be one way to look at it. So you mentioned that you preferred or there was something about OT that you preferred over physio. Do you remember what, what it was that sort of grabbed your attention about OT that sort of physio 
wasn't able to provide? I do remember very clearly that the um, practical experiences and the jobs that I had were about people's lives. Today, we would talk about the occupations the, uh, that people were engaged in or wished they could be engaged in or had lost. Um, we have more language for that now in the occupational deprivation, occupational injustice. But um, with children, here were children who were limited in their development because they had cerebral palsy or they came from a very difficult background and and to be able to find ways of engaging them in play and looking after themselves and in adolescence, you know, learning to be uh, able to do life skills and so forth was very um, uh, exhilarating. Yeah. To see the joy and the engagement they had. And uh, with adults whose lives had been shattered by an injury or a disease of some kind, to find ways for them to engage in life was incredibly satisfying and hopeful um, and touched on issues of equity that have stayed with me all the way through. But I do want to say that physiotherapy was an exciting career, especially in the first jobs that I had, because it's like a skill. It would be like learning to be a really good pool player. You know, the more you can, the more you can um, develop the skill of hitting that corner, that corner hole with the pool ball, um, the more excited you get and, and you're drawn into doing it again and again. And so with physiotherapy, you know, the, the more you used your knowledge of anatomy and you could put together an exercise program so that people could get up and do things, um, that was pretty exciting too. And there was lots of technology. You learned the physics of um, shortwave uh, applications and heat and whatnot and those have served me very well so anytime I have a strained um, ankle or something I, I'm pretty good at fixing it myself your, and I don't need your physio to. training kicks in <laughs> <laughs> I guess so but it also shows me that that you know the knowledge of the body is incredibly useful and uh, I know we haven't you didn't ask me this yet but I I guess I hope that occupational therapists maintain knowledge of the body. I know some programs do not teach anatomy anymore or physiology. Really. Well, I, I don't think they do, or they do okay. in a very small way. Uh, we learned in a very thorough way. We did uh, dissection of the body and um, had the same background as the physiotherapists in that. So, but so it's been very useful because you can certainly figure out, well, it's not going to be possible for an individual to do something because I can do the analysis of the feet or the, you know, the legs or the hands or mm. whatever. And let's try something else. So it sounds, well. it sounds like your interest right at the start was almost stemmed from this, uh, I don't know, like a value of the pursuit of mastery to an extent 
you, you seem to what you've described there to me reads as like you you like that learning new things and getting getting your head around those new skills and that kind of thing well certainly that was the pull for physiotherapy but as i practiced occupational therapy it's not so much mastery although the ability to talk to somebody listen to what they would like to do and integrate what you've learned about why they're not doing it already and find ways in your mind to think, well, how might you work towards that? And it's not just your own body. It could be that you're living in a situation where, you know, you've always wanted to, um, I don't know, be a, uh, seamstress or a fisherman or a fisher I shouldn't use that sexist language but uh, a fisher um, but you don't live in a community where that's either of those things are valued so mm. it's not just whether your body is suitable um, so the mastery of that kind of integrated thinking is very appealing too so it's a different kind of mastery than I was describing with physiotherapy each has a mastery yeah yeah but the uh, engagement with people over something meaningful to do was far more appealing in the end. And it happened that those were the jobs that I really developed my opportunities to move ahead in the profession. So you you mentioned earlier uh, working with kids. Is that the, the sort of area you went into once you'd graduated and was working as an OT? Or did, where did, whereabouts did you end up working? Well, um, in brief, when I graduated... My best practicum, my most interesting practicum, for all the reasons we've just, uh, or I've just mentioned, was in a children's rehab center in Toronto. And um, with children with um, major disabilities, and you began to see how you could work with the family and the home setting and everything else. And so when I graduated... Here's, here's a little brief history. When I graduated, I went to live in Uganda. Okay. And I had my knowledge of physiotherapy and occupational therapy in a very rural area and did some work with a um, health clinic uh, living at a rural school. And when I returned to Canada... I went to a place that had always intrigued me to Newfoundland. And if you know the geography of Canada, it's sitting out in the Atlantic Ocean. It's uh, on the Grand Banks. It's where the Vikings from uh, Norway made their way and so forth. And, and the job that was being advertised there was at a children's rehabilitation center. Okay. And they would pay my way back to Canada if I would agree to stay for a year. So, you know, circumstances led me back to working with children, and it was a great job. I stayed there for three years, and I had a physiotherapy job in a children's hospital there. So I had a very nice, well-rounded background in working with children. But when I left there, I went to work in a um, physiotherapy job in Alberta, and um, so, you know, using those physio skills. And finally, I ended up 
in Prince Edward Island, which is on the East Coast. And uh, as it happened, the only occupational therapy job, except in mental health, uh, was vacant. And they needed a director of occupational therapy for a position of one (laughs) sole charge, but director. And so I took that. And that's really where I had a chance to uh, find my direction as an occupational therapist, at least for a while there. So I developed my administrative skills and that was with adult physical adults and children was a, um, a rehabilitation center and we worked with all ages. So children, adults, seniors, um, but we had a lot of freedom. And so for instance, there um, with adults who had, had major injuries, you know, quadriplegia, people with quadriplegia and so forth. We organized a, um, what would be called now special Olympics, okay. but just for Prince Edward Island. That's cool. And it, it was, it was. And so we adapted a bunch of things and we had a bunch of people who were, they felt stuck in their lives and we put on a competition and we got the local media to cover it and, so it was written up in the newspaper, it was on TV, and here were these people who began to see themselves as as really valued adults. And they had developed some skills and some technologies to make life more livable outside of the rehabilitation center. So you can see how my occupational therapy career yeah. unfolded through circumstance as much as anything but seizing opportunities to make it interesting. And um, it was from there through another circumstance that uh, I worked in community practice in, a, in Toronto for a while, which was, you know, home visiting back when occupational therapy didn't have community practices. And um, it uh, was a great experience then for seeing children and adults and seniors and whatnot. And, and sometimes the contract would be with a nursing home or with a uh, yep. workshop, you know, a sheltered workshop or, or whatever. And then finally I ended up working in a mental health clinic, a community mental health clinic. So you can see it you really have done everything. <laughs> I, I've had a fabulous range of experiences in occupational therapy, but what they did was to give me a sense of the profession as a whole yeah, and what it is we can do with the profession, but also where we get stuck and where we don't really see our way forward or where we have so much work to do to educate the public, the people we work with, the teams we work with, who have a very old-fashioned idea that you know, in a, in a mental health clinic that we should work with the group, having them do crafts to try and be motivational and, and do something they thought would be meaningful. But there's a whole critique around that or working with children that mainly you could help them adapt the chairs and this tables and the writing devices and so forth so that they could participate in school but it was all about you know writing and accessibility it wasn't about 
children with disabilities participating in their community. So we've, we've always had a very narrow view expected of us. Mm. And then the great sadness is that we fulfill the narrow view and we don't take the broader view that I've seen and lived in so many different places. But I haven't either. I haven't lived it either because a lot of the possibilities aren't funded. Yeah. So, you know, community practices and going to work with a community group are not necessarily funded at all. And some of the work that Gail Whiteford has done, like with refugee groups mm. in Australia, she had to have a special research project to fund that and a university position yeah, that paid her yeah. as a faculty member. But to be an occupational therapist in a refugee camp, governments don't hire occupational therapists to do that. And agencies, you know, immigration agencies don't hire occupational therapists yet. Mm. And yet the kind of things that Gail did with with refugees, looking at daily routines and the disruption of of um, everyday habits is really um, right on the mark. And the possibilities of working in that venue are really great if we see that possibility. So the pieces out there that we mm. have seen, we've researched and shown, and I've had the chance to live in so many ways although not all of them, um, they give me a sense of the breadth and potential and the depth of the profession yep. that is yet to be realized. So there's my speech about uh, no, how no. my strangely unfolding career, which was all circumstantial, uh, ended up giving me this worldview that I myself hasn't, haven't fulfilled. And uh, at the university... Uh, there could have been lots more projects, but I was the director and I did some research, but uh, yeah. uh, there was so much more to do. And then you get to this stage of life and you think, oh, my goodness, if I could start all over again, I'd do it. Uh, you know, I'd pick up on those threads. Yeah. Yep. And you just hope yep. that uh, the new the new generation, yourself and others, will pick up on all those threads, see the breadth and find ways to help the profession see where they could go. Yeah. There's so many things in there that I want to delve into. Um, okay. Uh, the only reason I know where PEI is, is I've actually got a friend, an OT friend that lives, I believe she's actually one of your ex-students um, who lives there. And she sends me photos and it just looks like the most amazing place that I've ever seen. And I'm extremely jealous every time she sends me photos. Um, is this somebody I would know? Uh, her name's Melissa LaPointe, but I'm not 100% sure. I, I think that's a married name, so I don't know what her maiden name would have been when she was at the university. Um, right. But she well, has she to... has spoken of you before, and, yeah, I'm pretty uh -huh. sure she's a, a, an ex-student of yours from oh, okay. I'm not even sure how long ago. Um, right. Well, I can think of various Melissas, and I, I was in touch with the PEI occupational therapists as recently as a couple of years ago, but... Now I'm not remembering all. Uh, all yeah. the ones she's there. she's uh she's working or she's a private works in private, but her her big area at the moment is she's essentially coaching other OTs. She's big in the entrepreneurship space, 
Good for her. So she's uh, leading the way pretty much at the moment. She's probably one of the leaders in OT in that space. So she's she's doing big things. Um, The one thing I was curious coming into that is thinking if you have a look over your enormous body of work, a lot of it is compared to some people, a lot of it is really big picture sort of, I guess, career shaping, oh, not career, like profession shaping ideas and concepts. And I feel like that little insight into just the breadth of uh, places that you've mm-hmm. actually been with this profession does kind mm-hmm. of shed some insight into how you mm-hmm. actually, because one of the things, and I talked with Gail about this when we did a podcast a little while ago, is one of the things I think a lot of people uh, including myself, struggle to get my head around is how do you actually get to a space where you can think that big? Um, mm-hmm. Like my my clinical career has always been in mental health, and I'm like I've worked in all the different aspects of mental health, but it's always been in mental health. Mm-hmm. Um, so I guess a lot of my views, my ideas, even about OT, has been shaped by that sort of clinical aspect and working with the professions that we have common contact with within that like psychologists and social workers and that sort of stuff whereas I've never worked ever with a physio um so like my clinical I guess brain has been shaped by uh, mental health practice in a way um so I've always been fascinated with how do you actually get to a place where you can think that big well in some ways the challenge needs to go back to you to think if you, as an occupational therapist, could do something about mental health in Australia, mm. given that I'm sure Australians, like Canadians, uh, have huge mental health issues mm. that our societies have kind of pushed under the rug, uh, the only people who get to see uh, a mental health service worker are people that psychiatrists have let in the door because diagnosis is a major issue. Uh, for funding and for authority to move ahead and organize programs. And so, you know, you with your knowledge of mental health as well as mental health services, like what would be the ideal way that Australia could move forward to address mental health in clinics, out of clinics, in schools, in workplaces, in homes, in government, in policy. So you have at your disposal, given your experience, a huge piece of life Mm. and a perspective from your profession that will shape ideas of what Australia could do about mental health. So the big thinking, in a sense, comes when there's been so many small pieces and, um, of course, Gail Whiteford is one of the best big thinkers in the profession. <laughs> Certainly is. Yep. <laughs> yeah. Well, and, and, you know, in addition to the places where I've worked, once I got to Dalhousie, I had such an incredible opportunity to meet people. And in the first sabbatical I had, I met Gail Whiteford and Claire Hawking mm. and Anne and Wilcock. Wilcock. Yep. So hugely informative, and um, as you may have seen, Claire and Gail and I ended up writing about 
occupational therapy from that first meeting. And um, then I met with Anne and that's, you know, the sort of story of having had a discussion with her about occupation and justice. And we came up with occupational justice and then tried to work with it from there. But there's just so much more work to do on those things. But had I not met those three women, I'm not sure where my thinking would have gone. So it's just a huge opportunity to press me on thinking in ways that I've used in the various things that I've done since then. Yeah, that's amazing. Oh, even lost one thing. I even took a note of it before. If you just even just a quick scroll through your published work is like a who's who of occupational therapy. There are many, and a lot of the publications and the the concepts that you've worked on with yourself and with other people like Ann Wilcock and Gail Whiteford and Claire Hawking are, are I guess the the OT equivalent of sort of household name kind of thing like they're 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 concepts that ot's i i think everywhere would know at least even if they don't fully have their head around them they would definitely have heard of them like occupational justice and that sort of stuff and that is something that i want to ask you a little bit more about uh in a bit one thing you did bring up before was around arts and crafts and that flagged my interest because it's something that i've actually been doing a bit of work on uh, in the mm-hmm. last few days. Now, mm. I know that you've written about the art and science of OT with Charles Christensen, um, mm-hmm. who's who's also been on the podcast uh, before. Um, one thing that I've been sort of toying with recently is around pretty much exactly what you said before around the OTs having this sort of affinity whether it's a historical one or whatever it is with arts and crafts and whether or not that still services the profession as it did way back at the beginning in the current day and i guess that originally stems from my experience again working in a mental health like an acute unit where arts and crafts was one of the activities i guess that was provided to people on the ward but the mm-hmm. question was always raised by me when I went in there is like, is this something that these people like? Is it something that they actually value or are we just putting it out there because it's something to do? Mm-hmm. Uh, and then if it is, that's fine. Like if it's something to do, but is that then occupational therapy just because we're giving people something to do rather than tapping into what they actually want and what they mm-hmm. value? Um, mm-hmm. When you're talking about the art and science of occupation, that art aspect of it is that inclusive of like actual developing art or are you more thinking about the art of delivery of occupational therapy that's a very nice distinction because i think it's both uh just first there is an art as well as a science in taking the theoretical and philosophical ideas of occupational therapy and thinking how can we meet the needs of people in X situation. I think that is an art. It's not just science. It's Mm. not as if we can just measure everything. And this is where I think uh, we're not quite 
past a point where we're still trying to develop the measures that mm. can be uh, quantified and added up and so forth, because there's more to it than being able to give an assessment that comes up with a number. Um, so I think the art and the science is is in many ways how we use our knowledge to engage with the world and particularly with populations and what you said about whether people want to do something or need to do something. Um, surely our practice is responsive to what's meaningful to people. And one of the problems of the use of art as it was put together in the early days was it became a formula and mm. it became it's very prescriptive. Um, very prescriptive and also um, very much during the time when professions were becoming organized, it became um, administratively structured. Hmm. So you'd have an occupational therapy department and it would have shelves with paper and paints and uh, various artistic supplies, some leather work and whatnot. Well, those were the choices. Hmm for what people would do and the choices for what occupational therapists would offer. Uh, but the question you asked already was the one that never got solved. Are those what people really wanted to do? And if you go back farther to the arts and crafts movement in um, the late 19th century, when Anne Wilcock has very nicely sort of traced early beginnings of occupational therapy of going into asylums or into um, poor houses or whatever and finding out what people needed and wanted to do and finding in those days one of the valued occupations could easily be learning to weave and having something to sell that was beautiful mm. and showing the population that just because you seem to be a crazy person, you could settle down and, and actually be productive. Yep. So I think art in those days was very much part of an arts and crafts movement, which was a way of developing societies. And early on, before, you know, we had industrialization, um, those arts and crafts were highly valued and we used them in ways that were therapeutic. Mm. So I think they are that very useful, but the structured administrative um, prescriptive um, period for the use of arts and crafts has really limited what we can do. And I, I don't know in your particular clinic what can be offered to people, uh, you know, versus what the budget says you can purchase. Yeah, yep. And, and that you need to anticipate what people will want. Well, how many boxes of paint will you need? Well, I don't know. It depends who you admit. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Well, that's it. Yeah. yeah so yeah. It, I, I think the answer has to be art is both the way we work and a medium for us. In, but, you know, so can the art of using a computer like you're doing yeah, to create to podcasts. Yeah. Uh, would be a very artistic endeavor for engaging people if that's what suited them. 
I'm yeah. interested. In them, yeah. Yeah, I, I think, uh, and that that's something I was going to bring up because, like, this podcast definitely started out as a, a creative expression for me and learning new skills and being able to like the editing process yeah. and all of that being able to yeah. say like I took all these sort of raw things and I turned it into this which in this instance is like episodes but um yeah. I think one of the the differentiating things I've been trying or been toying with in my head is um I guess looking at it more as creativity rather than art because I feel like too mm-hmm. often OTs get I get hung up on the word uh, and I'm a bit of a stickler for semantics at times um mm-hmm. So, and another sort of concept within the mental health space that I've kind of been looking at and it fits with this is I've had a few conversations with different people around uh, different uh, mental health impacts, mental health conditions, depression mainly, um, in that creative expression as opposed to arts and crafts um, seems to be a massive... uh, Mm -hmm support a massive help and it's usually the first thing that gets lost when people start displaying symptoms is that creative expression and i I can speak from personal experience with depression that creative expression really really helped me and then the number of other people that i've spoken to even if they hadn't sort of considered it once i've sort of Mm -hmm. mentioned like hey this is my theory uh they've Mm -hmm. gone oh yeah that's actually something that i i can sort of resonate with as well so i've kind of been toying with the idea of looking at it more as a creative mm-hmm. expression nowadays, mainly as you as you said before, like there's so much more to art, quote unquote, than just you know paints and pens and paper and canvas and that kind of stuff. Um, mm-hmm. Myself um, into photography now, which to me is a creative expression, um, mm-hmm. which may is not always you know it's not accessible to a lot of people because it can be quite an expensive hobby, but mm-hmm. it, it's something that back in you know the late 1900s early 20th century mm-hmm. probably wasn't wasn't really wasn't even a thing i don't think i'm not sure when the first camera was invented but it definitely wouldn't have been accessible to anyone so it's it's almost so, like an evolution of concept yeah mm-hmm. yeah that's right well also if you think broadly as we're talking about societies around the world and particularly you know, the North American, Australian, European societies where our basic needs, thank goodness, are often met, mm. except for some components of the population who are struggling. But we're fairly rich societies. Mm. The biggest question people are often asking is, how can I find some way to express the creativity that keeps me locked into not being the person I could be. And, you know, filmmaking and, Mm -hmm. uh, well, certainly podcasts, but uh, you may have seen in one of the books, there was a filmmaker in Canada who wrote a foreword for one of the enabling occupation books. She had been a filmmaker and then had a brainstem stroke And the occupational therapist was engaging her in relearning to think and use her affected side through cooking. She was furious because she wanted to make a film. Yeah, seems odd. 
Well, that's all we had. Yeah. You know, when you just think of somebody in a rehab center, what do we have for them to do? So yeah. there's an hour's appointment. You know, it is the structuring of health services, of funding, uh, and we are compliant with that structure too often mm. uh, because that's the job we're paid to do. Yep. And so she was not engaged to think about how she could make a film starting with, you know, what she knew and the hand that was still working. So, um, but I, you know, the point being that the search for creative opportunities for finding something meaningful to do is particularly strong Mm. in industrialized countries, but it is worldwide when you think of countries everywhere where hugely creative people either make things or they do things um, capturing their feelings, their societies. Um, the stories. They, mm. they, that's right. They tell stories. They design buildings to enable people to cluster together. So, you know, you have architects who are just wonderful at finding a way to have a building that, uh, that is very inclusive. So I, I keep wondering, like, where, knowing about occupation, who's going to be really involved in designing the communities of the future? I know there have been mm. a few occupational therapists who have studied architecture. Yeah, I've heard of a couple, yeah. Yeah, I, I even met one in Sydney some years ago, and yep. um, and uh, she was very good at uh, working on issues of accessibility, building by building. But I don't know what opportunity she had to be the leader. Yep. Yeah. Interesting. Do you yeah. think? Because one thing I, 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 it sounds like, um, sort of early occupational therapists were very obviously, and we still are to a degree, but less so now limited by the resources and the availability of, of uh, I guess, op- occupational opportunities within, say, a ward compared to now, whereas, like, that example that you just gave with the cinematographer, straight away my head is, like, I can make a movie on my phone nowadays. Like, you can yes. do everything. Like, we have, exactly. I think that's yeah. one thing that a lot of technology, yes, there's mm-hmm. pros and cons to it, but it's enabled a lot more of those types of things like previously like mm-hmm. being a cinematographer cutting film edit like you would have needed a whole warehouse full of equipment and a right. team and all of that whereas literally i could there's a whole there's people making careers on youtube nowadays filming stuff and editing it within a few hours and putting it up for the whole world to see technology's enabled us to have more ready access to a lot of the stuff that we use day to day, see day to day. Do you yeah. think that's actually making it harder for OTs? Because oh, it's interesting that you're coming to that question. That's exactly where my mind was going. <laughs> because in the old days, of course, you would have had to go back to film school to do all of that. Mm. But most people could do a film on their phone now. Mm. And what does this mean for educating occupational therapists and for the practice of occupational therapy? You can't be everything Mm. to everybody. So whereas I always talk about occupational therapy could work in any situation, 
with any group anywhere in the world. But not every occupational therapist could work in every situation. So for, you know, your skills in um, doing podcasts and technology and filming and so forth, does that suggest that in educating occupational therapists, we need to help those who apply to find their own skills Mm. and then figure out where they can use them best? Yeah. It's and that's something I've I've mentioned because I, I teach now like I, I work in academia now but and teaching the students we're actually going through something this week um, where all of a sudden probably more so than ever before we were looking at we we're looking at different lenses that overlay our ability to uh, service the people that we work with best and probably more so than ever before uh, the therapists skill set and limitations of that is having a bigger impact because mm-hmm. people's access to whatever it is that they want to do is that at that point nowadays where like you said we can't know absolutely everything about everything but yeah. do we need to is the the other question and yeah. or is uh, this is where i guess it comes back to everything that i've been sort of pushing for in my personal career uh, a better working knowledge of not just occupation but engagement and why people choose what they choose and why they're interested i guess mm-hmm. probably more the it's probably leaning more towards the psychological end of occupation um is that well, i might say the educational end okay Engagement to me is an educational concept. How do you engage people in learning something and finding out what they want to learn or need to learn? Yep. There is a psychology to it, but there's a learning aspect because there's uh, the educational part also includes the social context. Mm. Because you're certainly just like my career, I wasn't going to be able to do everything everywhere that I worked. Um, and the shape of the career was determined by where I lived and what opportunities were open at the top. But as an occupational therapist is graduating, what skills do they want to take forward and develop? I think, for instance, of the huge amount of advance, but also the huge amount of potential to work in the technology field mm. of physical technology, the occupational therapists who uh, are in there designing special technologies for people with one arm or sports people without legs and um, so forth. So in that case, it's, it's educational as well. They have to learn enough of technology um, to engage people in finding out what they need, but also then to engage with the engineers. Mm. They don't have to become engineers, just like you don't have to become a filmmaker. But they certainly need to engage engineers in coming up with the sorts of things that they learn through the engagement with the people that they care about. Yeah, I I feel like like probably more due to my experience with uh, OTs that have been in the field for 30, 40 years, like the older generation of OTs, 
they were almost expected to be like a one-stop shop where they knew everything and I, I kind of relate it to like I guess the concept of like meta learning where you're learning how to learn. Um, yes, whereas exactly. nowadays I feel like when we're teaching OT, it's almost like meta occupational therapy where we're teaching people about the concepts of occupation and engagement and all of that stuff rather than I guess teaching them a repertoire of occupations and how they're commonly used, which I feel exactly. like from what I've heard, because it wasn't quite that way when I went through um, I've heard OTs talk about how they used to do woodwork and that sort of yeah. stuff within their course where they were essentially taught the occupations yeah. that would be used in therapy, yeah. whereas now, like, there's just too many. You can't, it's literally everything, yeah. potentially. You can't learn all the possible occupations you would use uh, therapeutically, yeah. Do you feel yes, like that, that transition is, I guess, the space where occupational science has come into it, is to try and move... The profession more towards that i don't know what you call it i called it meta occupation before but it'll i'm sure there's a better term or probably already a term for it but do you feel like that movement from the very here's the the skill set that you will need to to here's like you're gonna have to actually analyze what's going on with these people and come up with stuff that's meaningful to them do you feel like that's in part I guess where occupational th- uh, occupational science sits, but also was that any in any form? I guess the intent of it. I guess when it started. That's a great question because I think the answer has to be that all of that was likely underlying the desire to have a science of occupation to understand how to look at occupations, to understand how people engaged with occupations. And where we were drawing the line was that it's not the therapy. So you're not, or the allocation of the occupation. Because of course, if you go to work in designing homes for seniors, Mm -hmm. you know, if you're part of a policy group that's looking at, the physical structures and the policies and whatnot for how seniors are going to live. Is that occupational therapy? Because you don't have an individual client. Yeah, I mean, therapy yeah. is kind of an individual thing. So we've had the critiques in occupational science that it's not all, we can't just think about individuals, think about the collective, think about the community and so forth. So, mm-hmm. But where that line lies between therapy and the science, uh, I don't think anybody has a clear idea other than that you're not employed as an occupational therapist when you're trying to be an occupational scientist. There's a huge amount of overlap. I don't know where that will end up because there are certainly some people like the American occupational science movement began to call it occupational science as a way of getting more attention when occupational therapy was really uh, given a very low status. So uh, I know people like Ruth Zemke Mm. would very much say, yes, of course, in occupational science, we look at the therapy and how occupation is used. So there is a fuzzy line uh, or a blending, you know, I don't, mean that it's a problem but it it 
There isn't a distinct line. It is not clear cut. And when you say the ideas that drove the formation of occupational science are multiple, Mm. one of them Mm -hmm. being, you know, um, political, small P, strategic, you could say, rather than political, but strategic to try and um, give a kind of global view that there's a science behind this work with occupation. It's just like the public health people now saying you've got to follow the science on COVID. Yeah. And so, you know, we had to create a science of occupation to legitimize it. But it also has helped people to see that there's so much more to know about occupation. And I think that's, to me, that's almost the exciting bit about it, or that's the bit that I enjoy about it is like, it's, the more you learn, the more you realize you don't know. <laughs> it's like yes. an, an oh. ever-ending rabbit hole. <laughs> That's right. It is never-ending. Yeah. So one of the, I guess, pieces uh, of your work that has intrigued me the most, uh, and I've spoken about it with Gail multiple times as well, is occupational justice. And it sounds mm-hmm. like even straight out of uni, you are off to Uganda, and it sounds like that... Uh, I guess concept that way of thinking has almost always been there for you. How did mm-hmm. you? How did it come about? I guess the the formalizing of it as a an occupational therapy concept. It's hard to say how much one's beliefs and values from your own life. Mm into the beliefs and values that inform your practice. And one of the things that I have just done as a keynote for the Swedish National Conference delivered virtually in March was to, in this keynote, they asked me to talk about the future of occupational therapy. So I began by tracing the values that were present when I started. So I use my own story as, mm-hmm. a, as a kind of guide for the changing values that have brought us to occupational justice, which you've asked about. And certainly I suspect that many people who enter occupational therapy have an either overt or well-developed sense of equity and fairness before they come into the profession. And that too is one of the ways that I've felt I veered towards occupational therapy rather than physiotherapy, which was about fixing the body. Yep. And I'm sure they would have a broader view than that these days, but um, the underlying values of equity and fairness and justice, I think, are present in virtually all occupational therapists. If you're trying to take people who are in some way excluded from participating in society, whether it's because of disability or poverty or refugee circumstance or whatever else it might be, um, and find ways that engage them in doing something themselves to change their life circumstances towards something more meaningful. So I think the occupational justice side of me, of my interests was there all along. And 
um, in this keynote, as I say, I, I was tracing the values that I encountered to begin with when I didn't see much in occupational therapy, that they were very mechanical and, um, and prescriptive. And then we began to open up our thinking um, as around the world models Mm -hmm. emerged that had an environment and looking at the whole person and so forth. And then in this most recent time, we've found language to talk about human rights and justice as guiding principles for what we're doing. And um, it means that back to the first paper written with Gail Whiteford and Claire Hawking was on language. um, And I gave a keynote in the U.S. with the Society um, for the Study of Occupation on occupational literacy I think I've read in that other book. words, yeah, yeah. In other words, we we really haven't talked much yet about how you learn to talk about and think about occupation. Although I know Gail has worked around the edges of that, mm. even without using the term occupational literacy. But I I, I have a background in education as well as occupational okay. therapy and. Um, in the world of literacy, you know, we have financial literacy and um, and uh, geographic literacy for getting ourselves around and so forth. And it seemed to me that there's an occupational literacy to be learned and developed. So I don't know what, whether anybody will pick up on that, but the occupational literacy is what's enabled us, I think, to start realizing and seeing there's a consciousness raising through language to see the human rights and justice issues in our work and in the issues that concern us. It's interesting. I did a, a, a podcast recording with Nick Pollard a few weeks ago. Uh, and one of the things that he brought up, and I'm curious, not just him, it was a, a random thought from him, but, if you've had any sort of, I guess, opposition to the concept of occupational justice, because one of the points he brought up, not specifically about occupational justice, was that OTs like to reinvent the wheel and that a lot of the concepts that we're uh, putting occupational in front of, we could usually just use, uh, like the example he gave was occupational justice, where is it something that we could sort of just tap into social justice and mm-hmm. would it have the same effect or do you have have you had any opposition to concepts like occupational justice like for from like that type of example yes yes and i think um the opposition takes a couple of directions one is that no we're about helping people function in their lives justice is too big an issue of any any kind of justice. Mm-hmm. You know, that's beyond what I went to school to learn about. Yeah, yep. The other direction is the one that you mentioned, that um, putting occupation in front of justice, just mm-hmm. like occupational deprivation, um, seems like a trick that um, is no more than uh, coming up with cute language. Yep. And... Um, 
to some extent, I, I understand, again, from an educational point of view, if you have what people would call jargon, they won't listen to it. Yeah. And if they don't know what you're talking about, they don't listen to it. So there's certainly be lots of situations where I wouldn't refer to occupational justice. But I think in terms of, of our own consciousness raising and then gradually raising the consciousness of others by teaching them uh, what occupational justice can be about that's more or different than social justice that's our challenge i don't think we're there yet okay so do you think I, I do you know, think it just needs more like is there more research that goes into it to differentiate it or okay. just more edu- from a i guess an educator's point of view getting it to their students and actually teaching them that there is a difference both okay because you may have read the article by um Karen Hamill and Brenda Began a couple so. of years ago, in which they raised the question, is there really any difference? And their critique is generally that there really hasn't been enough research mm-hmm. for us to make the distinction and to use those terms in any educated way. And I agree. Mm-hmm. Okay. You know, so there is more work to be done if we're going to understand, you know, occupational alienation or occupational marginalization or the bigger term, occupational justice. We need to do a huge amount of work and and some of it needs to be done with people who understand different kinds of justice. Yep. Um, Yeah. And, And so there is that. But then also engaging students to help them think about when they would talk about it and what does it mean to them and, you know, how do they get comfortable using the language so that it doesn't feel like it's just an add-on to everything? Yeah, I, I guess the way I've always conceptualized it, and I've never really considered it to be the same, um, maybe because of how I look at it, but I, I guess for me, and I've had discussions with other OTs about it who see it very differently. A lot of I've seen a lot of OTs that look at it as almost like this add-on to what they're already doing, where it's like, okay, I'm looking at this, this, and this, and I'm also going to take into account occupational justice. Whereas to me, I'm like, well, occupational justice is almost the overarching framework. Like everything you do needs to sort of fit within it. And I think the way the reason why I've never really considered it to be the same is. To me, because I've looked at it as that overarching framework, concepts like occupational uh, deprivation, like uh, occupational apartheid, those kinds of things, those smaller concepts within it are, to me, very obviously different from, like, occupational apartheid, very different from the apartheid that most people are very familiar with. Um, Like, there's a very clear differentiation between those two concepts, and it's all of those little our or we would look at as our like our language that Mm -hmm. that's where you you're going to actually be able to really see the difference between occupational justice and social justice Mm -hmm. and i i just feel like i don't know whether it's well i guess i could ask you i don't know whether that was how it was originally set up and framed to be more that way um or if it's just a matter that we've been teaching it wrong or people have been reading about it and interpreting it wrong to look at it because I was very puzzled as to how, man, it's just how my brain works, but I don't know how someone could read it and then look at it as like an add-on, like, oh, this is additional thing that I now have to look at as well. Well, I think it's difficult to get a hold of such a big concept as justice, Mm. any kind of justice. 
and people are familiar with social justice. Yeah. And in, in coming up with the uh, or feeling the need to name occupational justice, there were initially a number of examples where, uh, well, we used an example of children in a school situation where, you know, social justice means there should be ramps and buses and so forth mm-hmm. uh, to make sure that they can go to school if they're living in a wheelchair. But occupational justice could be that the kid is sitting in the school and doing nothing and learning nothing about what kind of meaningful occupations they could engage in, given who they are. Yep. Um, so there was a distinction, and, and we had a number of those kinds of examples. And I think it's maybe challenging your students with the question, if in a mental health clinic, you thought there were social justice issues, what would you do about it? Well, I might meet with the committee and try and get some policies changed. I might see if there was funding for them to um, be able to have job opportunities in the community. And then you can ask the question. So if you're thinking from an occupational perspective, what would you do particularly How would you engage people in that occupation themselves? Because the social justice isn't about engaging people in occupations. It might overlap, but it might be that in the mental health clinic, there would be a discussion of what is it, what occupations are really where people get stuck. Yep. And um, what steps would help them to learn what they need to do when they want to live on their own and where are the barriers to that. So that becomes both social justice and occupational justice. But I think the occupational justice helps to elevate the focus on what it is people need and want to do and can't do. Mm. Whereas social justice doesn't go there. Yep. It doesn't ask the same. It doesn't ask enough questions about, what people are actually doing. Yeah, I, I've. So I think that's. It's not just a matter of adding the word on. It's, it's actually. It's 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 actually adding a layer of analysis that isn't present if you only look at social social justice. Yeah, I, I've. I've always mm-hmm. looked at it as. It, it mm-hmm. seems to me, and I'm not big on like social justice literature or anything like that, but just from what I do know about it, this it's maybe it seems more like a broader concept to me mainly because that's what I do like OT is my sort of that's how where I'm my head's at most of the time anyway so it just seems like a broader concept to me um mainly because it feels like a much more practical uh concept for and again maybe that's just because that's where the space that I am in the space that I work in um, but I and the fact that to me doing feels much more practical than just sort of conceptualizing in a lot of instances. But it's it's. But isn't your aren't your comments illustrating what we started with in this thread of the conversation that it's a concept that came from recognizing that social justice was not enough, mm. at least in some situations. And uh, we need a lot more research to understand what we mean by that and when it's useful to talk about occupational justice 
not as a flippant add-on, yeah. but as something that gives substance and direction for uh, taking action. So, One thing I've always been curious about is when you're first, I guess, the, the very beginnings of ideas for something that big when you're developing it, do you have any idea how big or widespread it's going to be when you're first developing in an idea like that? I suppose you could ask the same thing of people who discovered DNA or whatever. Do you ever know where you're going when yeah. you're starting to think of big things? I don't think you ever know where you're going, but you have some sense of wanting to articulate something that is not yet articulated. So that's where we were. Uh, I was just asking you about the time. Uh, I, you... I can go as long as you want, or if you need to go, I'm it, I'm happy to to wrap it up. It's up to you. What questions did you want to raise that we haven't talked about? Uh, the only other thing I was going to ask was around the development of the uh, CMOP E, um, but because yeah. that's probably the the other area that I am most familiar with you and your work uh it's something that was taught to me when i was at uni and it's something that my university teaches uh, a lot of at the moment still so i was just more curious around how that came about because it's again another big such Mm -hmm. a massive (laughs) sort of area uh Mm -hmm. where you really are touching on literally everything that can mm. be looked at and happened within the profession. Um, mm-hmm. ha- how did, how, <laughs> how did you get to that space? Well, it fits into my quick summary of the historical evolution of values and interests and our articulation of those giving language and concepts to them. So in the seventies and eighties, models were appearing and you have the model of human occupation for instance in the u.s and uh, there was an occupational performance model so uh, the question is really what purpose do models serve and yes there's lots you can learn about cmopi or or the model of human occupation um and does having, well, in the case of a CMOP-E, um, give you a visualization that enables you to help students and yourself or ourselves see the breadth of what we're about when words are too vague? You know, it's, it's a picture is a thousand words idea and so that's where it came from let's have something that shows people and that you can take to your teams and your communities and say this is what we are about and have them look at something fairly simple and say wow you're about all that yeah and then and then you give your example well you know um you know i've been working with a group of people who are struggling with depression and it's no good to just ask them how they feel. I have to look at where they're living because maybe they're in terrible circumstances and they 
they can come, they can become aware of that and, and we can work on how they can change the circumstances. And then, you know, well, the feelings, but also there's a physical side to it, you know, so you can take a, a, a scenario like that and play it against a visual image. Whereas without a picture, you need a thousand words. Yep. So I think that may be where it came from. That's awesome. One last thing before I, I release you, before I let you go. You you touched on it before when you were talking about one of your keynotes, and it's something that I, I ask a lot of people because I'm very curious just from their perspective. We've seen the profession go through various paradigms, shifts and that sort of stuff. What's next? Where do you Where do you foresee or where would you like the profession of occupational therapy to go next? Well, of course, that's the last couple of slides of the keynote from March. <laughs> uh, where are we going? What's the future of occupational therapy? Because that was the title of the keynote, yep. Future of Occupational Therapy. And I would hope that where we go next is to learn how to talk about, you know, to have a language that helps us to articulate where we are and that helps us to consolidate our identity as individuals and as a profession. Because with that kind of confidence and clear identity, there's almost no situation in society where we couldn't offer something. Um, you know, we can go into communities that are in in stress, we can go into communities that are seeking some new way of living. So I think the main job is to become clear on our own identity and how to tell others about it and how to show others by being the leaders who engage people in finding meaningful occupations in their lives. That sounds that? amazing. <laughs> I can't wait. It sounds mm -hmm. almost too good to be true. I love it. Well, we'll see whether the educational programs can put together an education that actually um, helps people who come into the program to grow sufficiently to go out and know how to keep building that identity and confidence without becoming so distracted by the huge array of possibilities for the profession. And it may be that we need some special areas that people choose, whether it's creative use of media as you're using yourself or the technology that enables people with physical disabilities to participate. I, there's just many sections of our profession that could take our own occupational skills into uh, uh, all sorts of areas and the community developers amongst us could do all sorts of things and funnily enough gail came up with a similar concept where she wanted to see the profession again kind of break into specialties but she wanted the specialties to be on our terms and not a medical model term where she wanted people to Absolutely. for example uh, specialize in occupational deprivation or specialize in occupational transitions. That's how she yes. envisaged yes. it. 
So yes, I, I think that I would say the same thing. Um, our tie to the medical profession was historic, and I think we still have a lot to contribute because medicine doesn't know how to help people heal and find meaningful occupation. And uh, we have some medical knowledge so that in the medical profession or in medical contexts, we offer something that the social workers and the recreationists and so forth don't offer. But that's only, so maybe our medical practices, I mean, she suggests a very, very interesting specialization based on occupational injustices, mm. like like occupational deprivation or marginalization of yep. workers who are stuck in menial jobs. But you could also specialize by institution. Yep. So maybe we'd have occupational therapists who specialize in working in the in medical institutions, whether it's community clinics or not, but they're the people who pull the medical team towards an occupational solution. Yep. But it could be that, then another specialty is in um, in the institutions of um, transportation and infrastructure. You know, designing yeah. uh, accessible transportation, but also transportation that is um, cost effective because it takes people to where they really want to go, and they can set up meaningful patterns of of uh, mm. transport. Community and, mobility, mobilization, yeah. yeah. Yeah, but maybe also there is an occupational specialty in the whole sort of climate change, institution of climate change, where we're looking at the design of homes, Yep. of homes and uh, the routines of daily life and how environmentally safe those are. There is quite a nice paper. You may have seen it in the Journal of Occupational Science about um, occupational, uh, how does she use it? Um, She talks about um, the damage, for instance, of uh, building uh, sewers next to Indigenous Aboriginal communities which means that their water and their livelihoods are poisoned. And so um, there's a huge occupational issue of essentially depriving people of traditional occupations, but also marginalizing them because they have no way of making a living. And that's all through um, climate degradation. So, you know, we don't have the word occupational degradation, but um it could be quite easily occupational deprivation. So it may be that specializing in occupational deprivation is too big and we need to think about it. Down even more. Yeah. 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 That's an interesting concept. I like it. Mm-hmm. Awesome. Well, thank you. I can't thank you enough. This has been an absolute pleasure. Uh, I know it took a little while to, with everything that's going on in the world to, to pull it all together and make it happen, but we got there in the end, and yeah, I, I've it's it's been fantastic, and I, yeah, I can't thank you enough for, for coming on. Well, thank you for your interest, and I hope that whatever you put together, maybe you'll send it to me. If you liked this episode and want to check out more, head over to occupiedpodcast.com. 
or search Occupied Podcast in your favorite podcasting app. If you have thoughts or reflections on the topics discussed today, please do get in contact. We'd love to hear from you. And lastly, if you got some value from this and you want to help us out, like, subscribe, and share it with a friend. Remember, be good to yourself, be good to others, and always keep occupied. Well, you're very good, actually, at moving the conversation forward in a um, in an inquiry-based approach. Thank you very much. Thank you. Because I'm yeah. genuinely curious. <laughs> <laughs> well, it helps. <laughs> <laughs>